This episode of The Bill Murphy Show brought to you by Zapiti, the definitive high-quality audio-video media player that also stores all of your 4K video and high-def audio. The 2018 Sound and Image Awards winner of Product of the Year and two-time Best of Show winner at Cedia. Get all you need to know at zapiti.us.com. That's Z-A-P-P-I-T-I dot U-S dot com. Hello. Bill. Yes. Frank. Frank, perfect timing. How are you, man? It looks like we got a perfect level, too. I was going to futz around with this thing for a few minutes, and uh, it looks like we're good. The magic of landlines. <laughs> Do you know I don't own a cell phone? Oh, good for you. Nope. Always high-quality phone calls for you. Yeah, I don't own a cell phone. I won't own a cell phone. And I don't do the whole social media thing. So people get in touch with you whenever you're damn ready for them to get in touch with you. So. No, they can call me on my landline anytime. My number's pretty available, Excellent. and they can email me, but I won't use like the social media thing. I just... Fantastic. I don't, I don't believe in it. I think it's crazy. I think it's bad. I think it's evil. So I just don't want to know. And I'm not a technophobe. I'm actually a very technical person. But when it comes to the uh, internet stuff and texting and all that nonsense and cameras on the computer i'm not into that cool and you should stay that way because it's working for you <laughs> works for me the bill murphy show the stories behind the music we are back with another season very excited to be doing this and i couldn't think of a better reason to kick off a new season than by having this guy so we're here to promote the uh, and talk about and get excited about this new release, a long-awaited release called Frank Marino Live at the Agora Theater. It's three full sets of Frank in concert, totaling 350 minutes. Try to absorb that amount of time for a second in your head. Captured in full, stunning HD and amazing audio, includes a Blu-ray, three DVDs, and what is understated in this thing is the 180-page book. It, you can't even call it a booklet. It has the whole story of Frank, plus the whole story of the project, which has, to say the least, quite a bit of folklore that goes with it. And that's why I have him on the phone. It's been released completely independently. Another fantastic subject that we can talk about in this show, too. And it's available right now for order at MahoganyRush.com. I only I feel compelled to introduce you as ladies and gentlemen. Oh, you know that line, do Are you? Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> it actually, it's it should be in a, a track of its own. It is actually separated like that. Yeah. I mean, people, actually, there were some people that told me that I should have used that intro on this. Uh, Why not? Well, I, I just. You know, it just didn't. I don't know. There's no no real reason not to. It just didn't, <laughs> didn't happen, you know. Can you remember? I'm so curious about little things like this. Do you at all remember who did the voice on that originally? Well, I do, but I can't tell you. Wow, why? <laughs> just can't do it. It's probably can't, a radio hero that we'd all love to learn. Oh, man. Can't do it. Okay. Can't do it. Just Wish I could. Add to the yeah. mystery that is Frank yeah. Marino. <laughs> yeah. Could be Barry White. It could be, but no, that's not Barry White. <laughs> Yeah. So in this show, we're going to get caught up with Frank Marina. We're going to hear the details of the story behind this long-awaited work of art and also try to confirm or debunk various rumors and urban legends that have surrounded Frank Marino and Mahogany Rush over the years. And I think that's mainly due to your, uh, I don't know, you've kept a, a rather high level of privacy over the year. Although you say you're rather accessible, you weren't very visible in interviews and radio shows over the years. Well, that was, that was, yeah, and that's absolutely true, but that wasn't because I didn't want to be. 
it was more like the industry. I was never really, uh, let's say, the darling of the industry. I was really sort of, I pushed back against it quite a bit. So, you know, there weren't too many people who were in that at that time, especially who who really wanted to have a lot to do with with me because my views about the industry were always almost against it. So, you know, I was, I I guess I'm a kind of iconoclast in a way, you know. You sort of went about your career pretty quite obviously not for the money, but just for the uh, beauty of it all, so to speak. And you just uh, didn't care to conform to the... That was the problem, you know, like from, from the day that I, you know, got involved with record labels, uh, because, you know, the first record label sold me to the second record label for three records, and then they sold me to Columbia for seven records. And it, was, it wasn't it was like, you know, you, you end up, your record deal ends, and you go out and you look for another record deal. I was literally sold like a commodity uh-huh. from one to the next. And because um, I was young when they first signed me up, I was 15, 15 years old, you know, 16 when I recorded. You were wise and playing well beyond your years at that point, so I don't pe- think people realized how young you were. Yeah, so what happened was I always had this iconoclastic view of the industry because I came from, you know, the I guess you could call it the hippie days when you wanted to be a nonconformist. Right. And um, so that was to us at the time, oh, you know, you're going to join a record company and all that stuff, it was like the ultimate conforming thing, yeah, you know, yeah. like the establishment. And I really didn't want to do that, but I did it because they promised, you know, gear, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and uh, so one thing led to another, but over the years, that that part of my personality came out more and more, you know, as right. I got older. And so when it got to the point where I was, you know, making albums for Krebs and, you know, Columbia and all that stuff, and I was at a management firm that had the kind of acts that did kind of conform, I sort of was like, a, I guess, a black sheep, you know? Yeah. So I would make the albums that I wanted to make, and I didn't care if the songs were seven minutes long or nine minutes long, as long as I was having fun doing it. <laughs> so we had, you know, we had a lot of arguments. From day one, it was an argument over what album cover I'd use or mm-hmm. why my songs weren't radio friendly. and Some of the and, almost real life versions of the stories you'd see in like Spinal Tap and stuff like that. Yeah, but I was just really, really genuinely not, you know, not enamored of the industry. I never was. And, uh, and, I, I and a bit naive to it all, maybe, or no? Well, naive in the sense that when I first came into it as, as the young kid. Right. I thought it would be Woodstock, uh-huh. and it was anything but Woodstock. You know, it was. I thought it would be camaraderie, and everyone would be friends, and uh-huh. we'd all hang out, and after a gig, we'd all go jam, and you know, that's what I thought it was going to be. And then you get in it, and you find out that it's not that at all, and people are backbiting, and everybody's you know trying to one-upmanship another guy. And it was just, you know, no matter where you went, whether it was with the bands or it was with the management or the record companies, it almost seemed like I found it very odd because I I was a drummer when I was a kid. I'm still a drummer, actually. And when when you're in the... when Drummers will understand this when I say this. When you're in the drumming world, it's almost like you're happy when you meet other drummers who are good. (laughs) <laughs> right. Like, it's like you love the idea that, oh, that guy's great, and that guy's even better, and that guy's great. Everybody's great right. in the drumming world, you know? 
there's no you don't we don't get that that kind of backbiting thing and yet in the other in the rest of the rock world particularly guitars and stuff it's almost like if a if they if somebody thinks somebody else is good it's almost not enough now they got to think that they're good but the other guy's worse it's almost like you got to choose one side or the other it's this weird kind of thing like Jimi Hendrix fans have to hate you know, had to hate Eric Clapton, or you know, Beatles fans had to hate the Beatles, had to hate the Stones. You know, it was this kind of weird kind of disunity that you'd get, and, there, and so that's what I was seeing. That's what I was seeing. I would see it in the bands, I would see it at the gigs, I would see it certainly at the record companies, I would see it at the managements because managements in those days they managed more than one band. Mm-hmm. So you'd be at a management place with three, four, five, six different groups. And it almost seemed like people were competing with one another. And I, I was very non, I'm a non-competitive guy when it comes to music. It's but so, yeah. And, and I'm, I'm, I play hockey, so I'm a committed, I'm very competitive in, you know, sport or something like hockey. You've got to be super competitive, uh-huh. but that's hockey, you know? <laughs> You know, I have hockey mapped out in my outline here because I've played hockey my whole life, too. So we have that in common. We can talk about hockey for the whole show, but uh, but we'll do that later. To introduce you to how I got introduced you, first of all, do you remember a building called the Hollywood Sportatorium? Absolutely. (laughs) Part of my live album was recorded there. Okay. There's another question that's answered. See, that's another rumor that we all lived with down here in Fort... Because it's the, the album doesn't distinctly mention in the credits which locations. It just says Florida and Texas, and we assumed, oh, it had to be from the Sportatorium show. So Yeah, one of, some of the songs are from the Sportatorium show. Unbelievable. So As a I, matter of fact, I think I can tell you... No way. ...that <laughs> the the part of the album that has the firecrackers going off... Okay, I d- and I remember those very firecrackers from those, going off. from that show. Okay, I was there... And I'm proud to say that I'm on that album with you. That's fantastic. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. So that answers like four questions that I had in one answer. That's incredible. So my brother and I were standing in the fifth row in that standing room area in the floor. And I, uh, he was on my shoulders. He's only 13. He, after that night, I went on to a radio and rock and roll career. He went on to be a touring, successful rock and roll drummer. And we both feel greatly influenced by that particular night. We were there to see Aerosmith and all we talked about for the next year was Frank Marino and Mahogany Rush. So that (laughs) was a fantastic thing. I'm certainly glad that he's a drummer. (laughs) I love drummers. (laughs) And I'm not a guitar player, but I'm a singer. And that also, I get to tell you this, which is just such a treat in this full circle moment that I'm in that I, you know, I was a, uh, I was in a cover band and we played two uh, Mahogany Rush songs and I and those songs are great to sing. They're so much fun to sing. And that gets me right into my next subject because I'm as much a fan of your voice as I am of, of the guitar. I think your vocals are underappreciated and I think they're as much a part of what's going on in Frank Marino's songs as the guitar is. Well, it took me a lot of years to believe that. I got to tell you, like in the earliest years all the early albums, all the middle albums, you know, to get me to do the vocals, it was like, turn out the lights, kick everyone out of the studio. I was embarrassed. Hmm. Um, I I was always embarrassed by my voice. It's, you know, believe it or not, I didn't begin to accept my own voice until I did Full Circle in 86. Wow. See, now this is is making me uh, crinkle my forehead because I'm a little surprised at what you're saying because your product over the years has been so 
I don't I, I, I don't have the right adjectives for it, but it's polished, understates it. It's very meticulous. It's very musical and very um, there's a lot of uh, syncopation in your voice. It's part of the yeah. rhythm of your songs. And I always thought that this was something you had mastered as much as the guitar. You knew exactly what it was going to sound like. You did it exactly the way you wanted to. I'm getting a sense that you felt sort of like um, forced into doing the vocals yourself instead of well, getting... I wa- well, there's no doubt that I was forced because we were a three-piece band for so long. Well, that's what I'm saying. You just couldn't find the right singer at the time? or it's not, No, I didn't want a singer. I really didn't. Okay. But, but I didn't have a problem with... You mentioned an interesting word. You said syncopation. I approach all music like a drummer. I know so that. So I approach guitar like a drummer. <laughs> and so I approach vocals like a drummer. That's exactly right, right. So, so yes, I have no problem with that. What bothered me about my voice was the sound of it, the pitch of it. You know, like I always thought, oh, no, that's not good, because I like some really good singers. And when you <laughs> like good singers, you know that you, you're not singing as well as they do, uh-huh. you know, so, uh-huh. so you're embarrassed by singing. Right, right. But it's it's just like later on, as I got older, I began to realize, you know what, it's okay to, to, to not be as good as the other singers. Uh-huh. It's okay to just be what I am. And there's a sort of an acceptance of how yeah. of how you sound that has to happen because I'll tell you as a vocalist my life my whole life a radio DJ voiceover guy doing audiobooks which is one of the most intimate things you can do I I still cringe at the sound of my own voice that never goes away and we right. just have to learn how to just accept it I think Exactly yeah it's almost like you know I've seen you know a lot of people over the years that looked pretty good. I never thought the same thing when I looked at myself in the mirror, you know, I'm just me. So human nature, I can't see me as being either good or not good. It's my face, you know, it's the face I see in the mirror. And it was kind of like that with the voice. I had to learn to accept that my voice is my voice and it's, it's pointless to try to make it be what it isn't. I didn't try to make it be what it isn't, but quite honestly, early on, I was so afraid of my own voice that I talked my way through a lot of songs. Uh-huh. Okay. You know, I did that Dylan-esque sort of, you know, talk about it, go through it like that, you know, <laughs> instead of the actual notes. You did have a tendency to fall off at the end of lines, because uh, we all know it's you, we, you'd rather do that than just try to be completely accurate on that last note. So you just, yeah, and it yeah. works as a good statement, because you're sort of putting in a little extra emphasis on that line that needs that line. You know? But you know what else? You know what else, Bill? That really sort of helped me was when I realized that because I played very, very, very loud. Okay, like I had amplifiers that you know nobody had. Right. Even when I was opening for these bands, I had walls of, of amplifiers that were three times louder than anybody else. <laughs> so when you're when you're standing in front of that kind of a system, yeah, you never hear your voice no matter what monitors they give you. Yeah, at best you're hearing the room ambience of your voice. Yeah, and it's like, just you're screaming over it by the end of the night, you're raw, you know, you're like, my gosh. But yet I'd go into the studio and found, you know, hey, I can actually sing these notes, why can't I sing them when I'm on stage? I didn't realize it's just a question of being able to hear it. Until I, you know, started to understand that if you take the time to actually set up a system where you can actually hear your voice, then you don't have to, you know, you don't have to sing from your upper lungs. You can sing from your diaphragm, and then all of a sudden the notes work. You know, so as as I got older, I got more, con- you know, confident of that. 
started to make sure that I always had a decent monitor thing. I think the best monitors I ever had was when I did this DVD because I took so much time to make them work. Because we, we did this DVD on a Saturday, yeah, which in which we did a whole 12-hour day. But we went in on a Friday, the Friday night before, and did seven hours more than what's there. I definitely want to have a, a whole conversation about that day because that was a magical night. But I do want to just cover this vocal subject for just mm -hmm. a couple more minutes. Then we'll take a little break, and I want to play a, a song so everybody that has not heard Frank Marino can hear it and be blown away. So we'll do that in a few minutes. But I remember a quote that I either read or saw Eric Clapton say in an interview where he jokingly, half-jokingly, but I think half-seriously, said he can't even sing Layla over the riff that plays at the same time. It's a difficult mm -hmm. thing to do. And uh, you have so many moments, your riffs in your mel in your rhythm sections are hard enough to play on their own, let alone sing on top of them. Talk about that whole ability. We already touched on the syncopation thing, but your vocals are such an important part of the song. It's amazing. How hard is that to do and how do you make it look so easy? So it's interesting you're saying that because we, I just had that very conversation here yesterday with a musician. We were talking exactly about that. As you should. And um, <laughs> and, and it's not something that comes up a lot, so it's quite you know synchronous that, it, that you'd mention it now. Excellent. But what it came down to was this. Again, it comes from the drumming. So if you play drums, it's almost like polyrhythmic. So when you're playing drums... It's interesting to note that even though you've got four limbs that are doing something, and even though they're doing it in concert with one another, they're really independent of one another. And one limb can do something like, for instance, if you walk down the street at a certain speed, you don't have to change your tempo, but you can sing a song in a totally other timing Yeah. while you're walking. You don't have to sing in the time that you're walking. <laughs> I'm going to try that the next time I walk. I feel well, like that's I how, That's how I taught a guy... I was producing an act, and the drummer said he was having a really hard time understanding how to, to do one thing and yet keep the beat the other way the other, and he didn't understand how that could happen, so I kind of fooled him. I said, well, let's go down the street to have a to buy a donut and a cup of coffee, which is about two blocks away, and said, we'll talk about it. And as we were walking down the street, I noticed we were talking, we were walking at a certain tempo, and I started talking to him about songs he knew. In this case, they were Beatle tunes. Okay. And everybody knows a Beatle tune. It's uh -huh. like knowing Happy Birthday, you know? <laughs> yes. And so I'm saying, oh, how about that tune, you know, from, uh, from how about, you know, Nowhere Man, that tune, Nowhere Man, you know? And he goes, yeah, that's so cool. He's a real nowhere man, you know? And he's singing it with me, and we're tapping. You know, when you walk down a street, if you're a drummer, you tap on your chest with your hands, you know, so of you can feel what you're doing. And we're walking down the street, tapping out beats and singing all kinds of different Beatles songs, Penny Lane, this one, that one. They're all different speeds. Meantime, our walk doesn't change. So I tell him, did you notice how we did all those songs and your walk didn't change? <laughs> and he goes, yeah. I said, well, that's what happened. So you're you what you're saying is it turns out to be way easier than you would think at first. Right. It's just that if you watch it, right. you can't do it. Right. So again, if, let's liken it to dancing. There's people who are great dancers, and there's people that look good dancing. Uh huh. And and I think you know if you look Fred Astaire or some of these great dancers, Gene Kelly, or even some of the more modern dancers, you notice that they they've got this kind of freedom to their bodies. It's it's almost like very natural looking. 
And if you start watching yourself, if you're trying to dance or move, all of a sudden it's awkward. It's like Elaine on, on Seinfeld, you know, <laughs> doing the, the crappy dancing. So it's the same type of thing when if I have to sing something and I'm playing a riff, the riff itself is, is one part of me being natural, just like in drums. And the other, the singing is another part, but they are related. They're yeah. not totally different timings, yeah. you know, it's not well, really as bad as all that. But it is there is a polyrhythm to it, and that's the beauty of music is not so much the notes that guys play on guitar or that they sing, but when they do them, how much they do before they take a pause, right? And how they phrase it, the phrasing. Think of the alphabet. I mean, it's twenty six letters, and we get a lot of words on a page, but we don't see them as letters. We see them as words. words. And they and the word represents an actual picture. If you write the word car or you write the word, you know, Chesterfield or sofa or something, you don't see it as a collection of letters that you have to then pronounce. You mm-hmm. see it as the actual item. And when I play guitar, that's what I'm doing. I'm phrasing things as groupings that don't no longer have individual notes in them. It's no more synchronous or uh, complicated than being able to do all four limbs at the same time on the drums. I get it. Mm-hmm. But I've seen some moments where you're inspired by the crowd and you take another song, a blues song, for example, to another level. And you may decide to, and again, I don't know if this is spontaneous or not. I'm just imagining that it is, that you'll decide to throw in an extra fill between these two vocal lines that you're singing because of the energy in the room at the moment, and that's not going to bother you at all. Doing that's not going to throw you off from the vocal. That's the little things I'm talking about that just seem to be, all right, if I want to make this even more intense, it's not going to be a problem. Yeah, so what that gets to is this. It gets to um, when you're saying improvising. Right, right. right. I'm, I'm a jazz lover because, like I say, I'm a drummer, but I grew up playing swing, you know, jazz and swing. Mm-hmm. So I've always liked jazz. There's a lot of jazzy stuff in your work. That, that Yeah, you know. I'm not a fusion guy so much. Right. I mean, you know, I can play it, but it's not something I'd go throw on a, you know, on a record. Mm-hmm. But jazz, you know, old-style jazz. So when you think about that, the phrases that you've got in jazz, and in a jazz band, when you're playing with jazz musicians, which is very different from rock players, jazz musicians tend to listen to the guys they're playing to with more than themselves. So if you're if you're playing with a bunch of jazz players, like when I'm playing with guys, I'm really listening to the drummer or yeah. the bass player right. or or the other guitar player or the keyboard player or the singer. Well, you kind of have to. And and here's what happens. Because we do, do free form kind of music, we have, you know, heads and tails in the songs, but there's really a lot of jamming in the middle. You really are getting your cue from the something the guy the other guy just did a split second ago. Now, it happens the same way with the crowd. The crowd reacts a certain way. Oops, that's a cue. And now all of a sudden you play to that, oh, just like you do with your musician. It's so apparent in your work. You can see you doing it's that. Fun. Yeah. It's just fun. It makes it fun. Otherwise, it's going through the motions. And we've never practiced, you know, like we don't, we've never had a band practice, you know, <laughs> we had a jam. Sure. And we might be jamming on Beatle tunes or something, but we've never said, okay, guys, like, let's practice the track now, and here's where the punches go, and, you know, there's six bars of this and that. I've never done that, and I've certainly never sat down and practiced scales. (laughs) It's just amazing, yeah. when you keep it free like that, everything's free. I'll tell you something a lot of people don't know. 
almost every single song on every single album, probably the exception of only two tunes, every one of them was written and recorded the night I did it. Come on. Yeah. That, I just have to like absorb that for a minute. Yeah, that's there's, true. There's just so many, so many things that I can call you out and go, no, there's no possible We'd way. We'd start an album. Oh, wow. And there'd be no songs. Wow. Okay, the album's starting on Tuesday, uh, blah, 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 7 o'clock at the <laughs> studio. Go and set up the gear, and there's no songs. There's literally no songs. That's unbelievable. So now I'd say to Jimmy and Paul, you know, or whoever, at the time I'd say, okay, you know, go you know, go pick up a chick or something or go to the bar or whatever and come back in an hour. I'll have something. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, go to the bar, meet a woman, and then come back with a story to write about. <laughs> no, no. That's the other thing. The lyrics were never there until the ends of the tune. Wow. So, so the point was I'd I take my guitar and I just invent. Uh huh. Now here I am. What I'm doing now is I'm playing just like when I jam with the band except now I don't have their cues, right? Right. So I'm mentally inventing them to play off them. And wow. I'll come up with Dragonfly, or I'll come up with The Answer, or you know whatever ended up being the song. Jeez. So every album was like that. Every song was like that. On every time we did an album, I think the only songs where we actually had played before was really early in my career. Well, first of all, there's a song that, called Finish Line. I do remember that one. Okay. That was actually a song done before I even had a record deal. Okay. And it never, when I was 15. It was a demo of yours? No, it was never recorded. Oh, okay. But it, I used to play it with my friends. Okay. And then when the band started, I just never played it. And then later on, when we were doing that album that had Finish Line, I think it was What's Next, um, I said, hey, there's this tune I used to do. You know, instead of writing the song that night, I said, hey, there's this tune I used to do. It goes like this. <laughs> and that was it became Finish Line. That also happened with a song I never recorded in the studio, but always played live, and that's Poppy. Okay, yeah, Poppy. So Poppy, I was playing Poppy before I was even really recording. Okay. When I was 16. Right, there's a story about that in the book, a brief mention about that. Yeah, so Poppy's another one, and Strange Universe. Mm -hmm. was a song that I w had been playing before recording. Wow. Um, but I had played it as an instrumental, and it was totally different. It was not totally different, but it was more of a swing beat rather than a, a pounding beat, which it ends up being when we do it on the album. Wow. We're learning so much, and I still have so many things to cover with you, I, and i got to get to some music, because I know there's people tuning in that haven't heard of you. Uh, mm -hmm. There's younger generations, even the people that have been on this show, the younger crowd of musicians that I've sort of showcased on this show, I would love for them to hear this too. So what we're going to do is we're going to play a song here, take a little break, and we want, if you have headphones, please, or if you're listening through, you know, real big speakers or anything, that would really work. It's not going to be as much fun on a laptop computer speaker, but this is a clip that's been out for a few years. This is what we were all chewing on for a couple of years, waiting for the rest of the DVD to come out. This is the answer. This is the way it sounds on the DVD, live at the Agora with Frank Marino. We're going to put this on, and we'll come back with more right after this on The Bill Murphy Show.
the answer. <laughs> so good. Frank Marino from Live at the Agora Theater, the masterpiece DVD that we've been waiting for all these years. 58 tracks of that on this thing. And they're all that good. And the reason that one sounded so good, even though we uh, upload this show at 192K MP3 quality, we kind of have to to keep it at a reasonable size so you can download it and not have it buffer and fail on you. But going in, we play that from the uh, fabulous Zapiti 1SE machine that I use. It's uh, It'll store all of my uh, DVD and Blu-ray information, plus all of my uh, masters from my studio work, because it plays back any format, and the quality coming out of the digital output on this thing is just pristine. There's a whole line of Zapiti players that are uh, outstanding for you audiophiles. Another observation I've made about Frank Marino's music over the years is that I think you hold guitar solos. And before I do this, I'm going to read these four quotes from guitar players talking about you. You can find this on your website, by the way, at mahoganyrush.com, which is also where you can buy the DVD, which is the reason we're doing this interview. Pat Travers, I toured with Frank back in the 70s, and he just blew me away every night. Joe Bonamassa, he set the groundwork for guys like me to have a successful career. If it wasn't for Frank, I wouldn't have a career. Steve Vai, Frank is a very powerful performer and was an inspiration to me at a very critical time in my musical evolution. And I love Frank's anthemic structures, an innovator in electric guitar wizardry, said by none other than Ronnie Montrose. So that said, as big of a fan of a, the guitar solo as I am, I think... And correct me if I'm wrong, if this wasn't a conscious effort on your part or, or if it was, I think that you hold the guitar solo very sacred and that they're not, at least on some of your songs, they're not so much improvisational as they are part of the construct of the song as much as your vocal track and the, in the arrangement of it. The, the solo is a part of the song and stays that way from what I can tell. Uh, every time you play it live, is this something that's a conscious thought of yours that you treat the guitar solo a little differently than the improvisationalists? Yeah, absolutely. The, the solo, it, it goes back to the idea that when you think back to old music before rock, you have you used to have a singer, could have been Sinatra, could have been Elvis, okay? Mm-hmm. They'd sing a song, and then there was a break where the music sang did what the melody was on the vocal for half a bar or two and then they'd come back with a vocal right right so to me you have to understand that almost every song i wrote like i told you i wrote them in the studio they were all written as instrumentals oh everything was instrumental okay. and then i would do a vocal after but the guitar i would use a guitar first to say this is what a vocal will do so the melodies would be done on a guitar. Yeah. That gave me the guide of where the vocal would go. So I would always look at what a guitar solo was doing. There's two facets to it. There's one where you're going off and inventing all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And there's the other, which is, as you said, the structure of the tune interpreted melodically differently than the vocal, but it's it's like another vocal. It's like a voice. I yeah. treat the guitar like a voice. As a matter of fact, I'll, I'll give you a tip. One of the things that I do and I tell other guitar players to do is that if you really want to make interesting phrases on your guitar and not just be wanking, then only play when you're breathing out. Huh. Because that's what a vocalist has to do. 
He doesn't sing while he's sucking in air. And that's what a horn has to do. That's what a sax has to do. That's what any kind of wind instrument has to do. Oh, that's a fabulous, fantastic observation. So I do that. So I'm, even if I'm doing a really long line and it's really fast, if you look closely, I'm breathing out slowly while that line's going on, and then I stop and take a breath. Oh, wow. That's, so it's habitual. It makes so much sense, too, because once you go beyond the scope of what you can do while you're exhaling, then then you're getting to the part of the, almost with a lot of guitar players, you see that and you go, all right, okay, enough. You know, almost. Well, some guys hold their breath while they're playing. Yeah, line. right. Like they'll hold their breath. You can see it that they're, <gasps> they're holding their breath. And, and I'm like, I can't do that. I'm like, could you imagine if a sax player tried to hold his breath and then play? All you hear is the click of his keys. So it, it's like, to me, it is a voice. And that's why it's mixed so loudly. Right. Like you'll notice my guitars are, they're louder than the music when I'm playing a solo. Oh my gosh. They're, they're where a voice would be. Right. And then perfectly done, Frank. It's as if we rehearsed it. Your tone. People talk about your tone, your tone, your tone. It's, uh, it's, just, a th- it's just a thing. It's an aggressive, I describe it as an aggressive, but at the same time still sonically pleasing sound. So you have light touches of chorus and flanger in there, perfectly placed delay. I think the delay and reverb is so artistically part of the Mahogany Rush sound, but that's another discussion. And sustain for days from all things a Gibson SG. Now, the, the 61 Gibson SG, correct? That's the guitar you well, play the most of the time? Well, the one in the video is a 62 or 63 modified. It's uh, It's got... Uh, single coil pickups in it and it's a little bit different but uh yeah basically i always played a 61 les paul sg for most of my career and for most of my music right yeah. now can you divulge a description of what uh, that guitar goes through on its way to the speakers into your guitar cabinets i wouldn't blame you if you wanted to keep a lot no, of that no, no, secret no, 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 but, i have no secrets believe and, but me. and the other thing is as you answer this question can you tell me how much of that how much of it is your fingers and your methods and how much of it is gear well, look, as far as gear goes, I build all my own gear, so and I design it. So I started by modifying pedals like at years the, ago. At the component level? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. I build, I build all my own stuff. So That's everything impressive. I'm using is homemade, but they're in, I might use the case. I can tell you this for the do-it-yourselfers who are out there that like to do that. It's always really good to go out and buy some fuzz tone or something that nobody wants, and they'll sell it to you for five bucks because it's crap. And then you take that because it's already got a case, it's already got the jacks, it's already got the battery connector, it's already got the knobs. So then you simply build your card and you put it in there and you've built yourself a great pedal for like 10 bucks. You know, so that's what I do. Wow. But, but I started as a modifier, you know, like, okay, let me figure out how, how to make a big muff better, you know, or let me figure out how to make a fuzz face better and I'd modify it. But then I got good at it, and then I moved on to the amplifiers, and I started saying, well, how can I make a Fender Twin, which is my, the basis of my sound, um, you know, how can I make a Fender Twin be less clean and still have some, some bite and some tone? And I started modifying Twin Reverbs. I actually learned that from another guy who was modifying them here. Hmm. And then I started to say, well, why can't I just design them in the first place you know, because then, you know, cause when you're modifying, you're kind of stuck with what they did 
And then I thought, you know, okay, let's learn a little more about it. And I eventually got better at that and learned how to design beforehand. Okay. So I know what I'm going to get before I build it. <laughs> but so, so you're asking me, what is the sound that you're hearing on the DVD? which is pretty much my sound. Or just an average of the last 40 years. What is that? Yeah, well, this, that's a little bit of a weird story. Now, a lot of people don't know this. That Black Live album that you like from the 70s, mm-hmm. the entire 70s, I played guitar through a transistor amplifier. And nobody what? believes that. No, yep, no tubes. I, I played it through an acoustic 270 amplifier. Why did I do that? Because... I had a, a six-foot-long pedal board right. with 22-foot pedals on it at one point. And they, now, naturally, the 22 were duplicates, you know, two fuzzes, three of this, two right. wawas, you know what I'm saying? But there uh-huh. was a lot of pedals. And the pedal board was actually my amp, my, uh-huh. my, my, sh- my sh- tone shaper. Right. So I needed an amplifier that would simply be clean and make what I built on my pedal board loud. The pedal board was your preamp and you just Correct. needed an amp, right? So I always used this acoustic 270 because it was a deadly clean loud amplifier. It just didn't have any distortion at all. Oh wow. So everything was it was like running it through a crown or something. Right. Okay. So everything was being done on my pedal board. But I just got tired of always carrying around the six foot board, which I needed four roadies to carry. Yeah. So I started building amplifiers that would do what my pedal board did. And that was gradually became the amp I use today, which is a preamp. I still use a transistor power amp with my preamp. I still use a tra- but this time it's a crown or, or a QSC. Anything, it doesn't matter what it is. Any transistor amp, that's to make it loud. But the sound is done in the preamp. And the clean channel the semi-distortion channel and the fully distortion channel are all in the preamp. So if you look on the DVD, you will see me walk over to my current pedal board maybe three times in the whole night or maybe five times right? to turn something on or yep. turn something off. But I don't work it. So my pedal board is really there for my guitar solo at the end when I use a lot of fuzzes and bombs and stuff. And your uh, and your uh, crybaby or whatever the yeah, and I only use that once in the night. Oh wow, I didn't so, realize so, that. So so the point is this: ninety percent of what you're seeing is me standing in the middle of the stage at my microphone, and all I have there is a pedal. Uh, to be able to turn to change the channels on my preamp from clean to non-clean, and um, and my backwards pedal, which I des- devised to create the effect of backwards guitar when I do "Are You Experienced" or uh, right. or, or "He's Calling" or any of that, right? So, we're, so you're a mad scientist, and you just yes, you can divide, you can d- design a sound of your own circuit board to make it your guitar sound exactly the way you want it to sound. Okay, great. Yeah, no, that's just, so what you're hearing really is just the preamp with the, with the crown. Wow. That's just amazing stuff, Frank. I've gotten so much out of you tonight that I, the only thing left, well, first of all, I want to remind everybody, uh, Live at the Agora, I got a link to it on the page on our podcast homepage. You can also go to mahoganyrush.com or mahoganyrush.net. You can order it 
um, and you'll receive it because this this is a completely independent project. You're taking on everything yourself. Okay, let's go back from the beginning. You performed on this thing. You mixed it. You, of course, replaced all of the drums. You mastered it. You did the video editing on it, correct? Well, I didn't do entirely the video editing. Chris Hilson, the director. You oversaw it. Well, no, he did it. He did because it was a live cut, you know, ah. he was doing all those changes while we played it. Okay. But I also had the individual video camera tracks from which he derived those cuts. Oh, cool. So then I went back and I looked at it and I said, well, you know, Chris, he moved, he changed cameras here, but he needed to change a little earlier because I started singing already. So I kind of went back and re repost cut his cuts. And, and to if make you them wanted tighter with the music, right? If you wanted to have the fretboard showing for longer, you or shorter, you would. You know. Yeah, because because he did a great job. I mean, it's fantastic what he did. So, but you know, he's not a mind reader, and we're jamming. So he'd hear me sing, and then he'd call camera three, but I'd already started singing. So oh, but get, you could fix that later, right? Yeah, that's the kind of thing I did in post. The only other thing I added to the video in post is at the end of the show, I did a split screen thing that. Um, uh, for the last song for Amazing Grace, right? I I did a double split screen thing there that he obviously didn't do at the time because it was a, it's a post effect, right? But uh, other than that, it's pretty much Chris Hilson. And then it continues on to the actual the production of the actual packaging, the and and you're you're taking care of all of the uh, distribution and and literally personally mailing them out to your fans one at a time. And it's just uh, it's something to be admired. And everybody just for that reason alone. And I can tell my fans, my friends that are uh, um, curious about this, if I thought that the, uh, it's a rather high purchase price, but it is worth it. If you look at 350 minutes of performances, it's like you're getting three full nights of Frank Marino in your living room, basically playing 10 feet in front of you with a perfect sounding rig and uh, perfect vocals, by the way, as I'll mention one more time. And uh, But it's worth it. I told a friend of mine when I saw it, after I saw the first song, which I won't give away what it is because I purposely didn't even look at the track listing, this is how much I get into it. I, I didn't even want to know what was on there. I just hit me with whatever you got. And the first after the first song, I thought that the money I spent on it was already worth it if I'd only gotten one song. So there you go. <laughs> I'm so glad you liked it. <laughs> no, I mean, it's it's just, uh, it's over the top, Frank. I think if this was a, you know, ironically, if this was a commercial release and was going through a the machine, it, I, I wasn't kidding before. I think it's Grammy, uh, at least technical-wise, and, you know, I, I mean, not to take anything away from the playing, but it, on a technical level, it's, it's Grammy level. I think it's just a... Uh, it's so beautifully done is the best way to I mean, to you know what? I, you joke about the Grammys... I said that to a guy when I had finished it. He says, you know, he said the same thing to me. He says, hey, man, maybe one day you'll win a Grammy. I said, listen, if they give me a Grammy, I hope it's for editing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And they, and they just might. So, And you deserved it. You did earn it. You put more hours than any other editor. I'll bet you're a pretty skilled audio editor now, Frank, huh? No, I am. I'm. Yeah, I even invented some, some computer programs to help me do it because it was just, you know, it's just so much to did. do, but, <laughs> but I, there is some, a point that I want to make. And like you keep saying how we're doing it ourselves. Okay. We are doing it ourselves. And by doing myself like this, you know, every aspect of it like this, it's because I want musicians to know that you can do this yourself. It's not, you don't need the industry. You never did. 
It's, it, it's been a lie the whole time. The industry has patents on many things, and I think one of their greatest patents is the patent to be able to rip off artists. They do it better than anybody. And I know I sound like a real iconoclast here, but I'm for musicians. And I think musicians have always gotten a raw deal, no matter who they are, even the biggest guys and the smallest guys. No one gets less ripped off than another. And I, I would like to know that we live in a world where any musician can make his record and it can be really good and he can do it all without anybody else. And there's going to be an audience out there that's going to like what he does. And I think that's the way it should be. I don't understand why we ever had all those middlemen. Why were they there? What did they bring to the table? Yeah, well, you're saying that rhetorically because you know why they were there. Well, we know why, but they were really, you know, I participated once in a talk at a very prestigious university here in Montreal. It's called McGill University. And it's like one of the premier medical and law universities. And they called me for a talk at the time. You remember when um, Napster was happening? Yeah, yeah. People were like talking to Metallica and all that stuff, you uh -huh. know? So they called me because they wanted a resident musician to be on this panel. And this panel was all about the music industry people complaining about how the downloading was, you know, they were basically saying that the kids were thieves. Yeah. And I don't think that's true. So they called me to be on the panel thinking that I would agree with them. And I got to talk to this room full of lawyers. This was all people that were graduating law school that are about to go into the publishing field. Well, when I spoke to them, they had the president of Universal Records there. They had the president of HMV. They had all kinds of people there. And they, you know, after they did their complaint-a-fest, okay, <laughs> basically what they were doing, they said, what do you think, Frank? <laughs> and I said to them, I said, I'm just glad that it took a couple of 14-year-olds to figure out how to take down the music industry. There you go. I said, you know, you people are sitting here calling your clients or your, your buyers thieves. I said, but I want to ask you guys a question. When we were going through the 70s, you weren't worried if some radio station was playing the crap out of one of your albums 24 hours a day. You weren't complaining that people were able to hear it on the radio, therefore they might not buy it. You were only too happy to get that kind of exposure. As a matter of fact, you paid people to give you that exposure. Right. So now all of a sudden you're crying the blues? I said, maybe you should be thinking about how you've been packaging you know, 19 and $20 records or CDs or whatever they were at the time and really not giving people anything more than one tune. You know, I think accidentally, in hindsight, that whole occurrence that happened at the turn of the century turned out to be better for the music industry than hurting. It, it, it helped it more than it hurt it. In a sense, they figured out how to rip off even easier because now they don't have to account what they're downloading. Right. But the, but the point is this. They figured out a new way to rip them off afterwards. Exactly. Right. But the point is this. I told them at the time, I said, you know, you've been, you guys have been given your pink slips because you, you were at the trough for too long taking advantage of everybody. You, you make a deal with an artist and you, you promise him two bucks because I can tell you the most any artist ever makes on a record is two bucks, maybe wow. 250 if they're big artists. Mm -hmm. So you promise them two bucks, you charge 18 bucks or 12 bucks going out the door, and then you steal the two bucks. Mm -hmm. I says, you know, 
What I think, what I wish would happen every time somebody writes me a letter and says, "Hey, Frank, you know, I I saw someone with your record bootlegging your record, and you know, I, should we tell him to stop?" I say, "Don't tell him to stop. Tell him to bootleg it as much as he can, but just ask the people to send the artist two bucks." Yeah, right. Be, and then you wouldn't. I say, I'd rather, I'd rather that these people were my record company. Just send me two bucks, and then do it all you like. Well, there you go. There's part one of two, Frank Marino, Mahogany Rush, live at the Agora Theater, available on DVD, masterpiece available at mahoganyrush.net, mahoganyrush.com. There is a whole lot more to come with Frank in part two, and we go all over the place. Of course, a whole lot more tech talk, record company talk, an in-depth look and a very close listen to uh, one of the most, I don't know, one of the most special moments of the whole DVD. I'll give you a hint. It's a track that's more than 10 minutes long. You will love it. And we even do 20 minutes of hockey. <laughs> yep, we're going to turn into a sports show for 20 minutes with Frank and get some Quebec-born expertise. You do not want to miss it, plus a whole lot more. Thanks to sapd.us.com to check out their high-tech equipment, the stuff we use to play the music on the show. Thanks for subscribing, liking, and sharing. We'll catch you next episode.